Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have been reading Mark's gospel together, and in his story, we're in the final week uh, of Jesus before his crucifixion. In fact, we have now, in Mark 14, arrived at the day before his betrayal and his arrest. And here now in Mark's story at the beginning of chapter 14, um, the tone of the story starts to change and it begins to move and it begins to feel like this runaway freight train headed into the darkest of nights. And it begins here with this thing that happened in Bethany, which was the place where Jesus was staying in that final week with his disciples. So let me read from Mark 14, verses 1 through 11 for us. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it out over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang um, words that are um, strong and bracing. Where we sang together, may hearts prepared and hearts dismayed find strength and solace in your name. And that's exactly um, what we're praying now. So this thing that we sang, now we're going to pray and we're going to ask you, Father, meet us all, those of us whose hearts are strong, who are happy to be here, ready to hear from you. Help those of us whose hearts are dismayed, who have been struggling and uh, suffering and been going through difficulty, who don't want to be here, who came for who knows what reason. Father, meet every one of us in whatever place we find ourselves and show us the grace of Jesus and and change us by it. May we find strength and solace in the name of the Son. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, probably uh, every one of us here this morning uh, knows the story of Henny Penny, 
uh, or we have heard the story of Henny Penny uh, enough times to be at least familiar with it. Um, some of us might have called her Chicken Lickin', but the story underneath it is the same, no matter what we called her. She's at home doing what chickens do, and an acorn falls on her head. Um, she convinces herself that the sky is falling, and she, so she starts off on a journey to tell the king that the sky is falling. And along the way, she meets with these other animals. She convinces them that the sky is falling, and they join her on their journey until they meet this guy named Foxy Loxy. Foxy Loxy is the bad guy, and he hears her story. He knows it's ridiculous, and he invites them to take a shortcut through the mountain to get to the king. And they go into his cave, and he eats all of them. End of story. And I've never really been certain what the point of the story is. But I mention it because I often think that the story that we just read and heard together is the beautiful inverse of Henny Penny. Henny Penny is like the dark upside down of our story because in our story, the woman is not mistaken. The sky is definitely falling. And so this woman starts out on her journey, but she doesn't stop anywhere along the way to convince anyone else that the sky is falling. In fact, she brushes right past everyone else like they're not even there. A dozen foxy loxies with their own schemes and dreams and judgments. And she heads straight to the king until she finds the king. And instead of this horrific end for the woman, the king tells her that she has done something beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, so deeply, so exquisitely true that she will be remembered forever. And unlike the story of Henny Penny, I'm pretty sure what the point of this story is. I think I know. Mark is begging us to find our own place in this story. He's asking us as bluntly and as open-handedly as he possibly can, what is Jesus worth to you? So it's a good story. It's a good story for all of us, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we came into this place thinking, this is a good story for all of us to hear and to wrestle with, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. So Mark begins by telling us that it's two days before the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Jesus' day, these two uh, separate feasts were celebrated together, and those celebrations meant that pilgrims from all over the country were in Jerusalem for that week. The streets of the city, as we have said, uh, as we've looked at this week over the last several Sundays, the streets were packed with people. And as I've said before, those celebrations in Jerusalem during Passover week were always tense because people felt very acutely um, the tension. They felt the bitterness of gathering to celebrate freedom while they are watched over by Roman overlords. <laughs> that felt irritating at best to a lot of people, completely unacceptable to others at the worst, and it wasn't unusual for fights and skirmishes and even riots to break out during Passover week. 
Well, and you add to that that this year there's this guy named Jesus in town, and there's whispers coming from everywhere in the city that maybe this guy is going to lead a revolt. He entered like he was a king. And now the authorities, the people who are in charge, the insiders have started to hear rumors that he was even talking about how the temple might be destroyed. So things are hot in Jerusalem. And Mark tells us now that finally, 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 this thing that has been simmering for years, which we first talked about way back in chapter 2 of Mark's story, this thing that's been simmering underneath the surface is about to boil over. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest Jesus in order to kill him. They've heard all that they can stand from this guy at this point, and they are terribly afraid, and they have got to get Jesus off of the scene. They have got to shut him up because he threatens everything about their lives. Everything. And they have to do it by stealth because they're afraid that these crowds of pilgrims will break loose if they arrest him in public. So they need someone. They need to get a guy. They need to get one of the guys that knows him. One of the guys that will know where he is at all times. One of the guys who will know where he is after dark when the sun sets. They need a guy. David uh, Garland, he teaches the New Testament at Truett Seminary. He uses the language of the Old West to talk about this plot against Jesus. He says the people who wanted Jesus dead were not the people who hang out in saloons and peep shows. His point is that it was not irreligious people who wanted to kill Jesus. It was the deeply religious people who wanted to kill Jesus. The people who knew who they had been called to be and who had been given the resources, everything they needed to be the people that they had been called to be. These are the people that wanted to kill Jesus. And I think people like us would be nuts if we didn't pay attention to that fact. When we allow fear to be an animating force in our life, when we let the things that we are afraid of drive us into action, there is no harm that we will not do to ourselves and others. The human heart, your heart, my heart, all of our hearts, is wildly adept at self-deception. We'd be crazy to act like that isn't true. And so we would also do well to pray that great prayer that the psalm writer prayed. We would do well to pray this prayer a lot, <laughs> like every day. Psalm writer play, prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Look at my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me into the way everlasting. Because I'm honest enough to know it could be there. That's a prayer of healing, church, and it's really good for religious people to pray. <laughs> 
So Mark leaves this plot abruptly, just goes away from it, and he shifts to this house in Bethany where Jesus and the disciples have been spending their nights that week. They've been shuttling back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. And tonight, tonight they're at the house of a guy named Simon the leper. You cannot make this stuff up. (laughs) They're at the house of a man who is known for this horrific, debilitating, isolating disease that he used to have. They are at the house of a man who just cannot shake his reputation for being the unclean one. It follows him around wherever he goes, even into his very home. And there's Jesus with him, reclining at table, having a meal, eating with him and the rest of the disciples. I mean, it may be Jesus last week, but he is going to go out like he came in, eating and drinking with all of the wrong people. Spending time with the outsiders, perpetually rushing toward the place where the shame and the pain and the sadness is the greatest. That's good news for me, for you, for the whole world. That is good news lived out in flesh and blood with a fork and a spoon and bread and wine. And this setup doesn't disappoint us at all. Out of nowhere, silently, swiftly, this woman slips into the room. She enters into the company of men. Mark doesn't tell us her name. He doesn't tell us what she looks like. He doesn't tell us what she said, even if she said anything at all. But what Mark does tell us is what she was carrying, an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. And in case we don't forget it, don't get it somehow, we don't understand what's going on, Mark says it was very costly. She's carrying something that most families would cherish as a safety net. Something that they would hope to pass down unused to generation after generation and and generation. The contents of it were valued at that time at about 300 denarii. That's almost a year's worth of pay for an average person. And if you were really hard up, You know, if your husband got sick or died, or your sons got sick or they died, if you were really hard up, you could sell that flask to a wealthy person. And you would have enough money to get by until you could figure something else out. So in her hands, as she walked into that room, she had all of her safety. She had all of her security, everything she had. And if you hear that and you hear an echo of that other woman without a name that we talked about a few weeks ago, the the widow who put in everything she had, (laughs) there's no coincidence. These are the people who get it in Mark's story. These are the people who see. But her security and her safety and her comfort, these are the farthest things from this woman's mind in that moment. There, in front of all of the men, before they could stop her, before they could talk to her about it or try to talk her out of it, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
And in the space of seconds, it's done. That thing is empty. That ointment is flowing down through Jesus' hair. It's going over the ridges of his eyes. It's running down his nose. It's going down the back of his neck, into his beard, down on his shoulders, and it's pooling on the floor around him. He is drenched with that stuff. And the smell that fills the room is the kind of pungent, beautiful smell that you smell maybe once or twice in your life if you're lucky. And as soon as that smell hits the noses of the men in that room, they start doing math. That room blows up in in indignant rage. This is what they wonder under their breath. This is what they mutter. Why was the ointment wasted like that? These guys who had been with Jesus for years, who had hung on his very words like they were life, these guys who had eaten with him, who had laughed with him, who had cried with him, who had done everything that he had done for the last years, they smell that smell. And they start doing the calculation. It's like a year's worth of labor and it's running onto the floor. It's gone. I mean, think of how many poor people you could have helped with that. But now it's gone stupidly, foolishly wasted. And Mark says they scolded her. They snort at this woman. They scold her for her wasteful, embarrassing extravagance makes them so uncomfortable they can't even look at it. That poem by Scott Cairns, I think it captures that looking down the nose moment of the disciples better than I ever could, and I wish it didn't hit so close to home. Considering our neighbor's faults, puzzling at those odd few who seem to shiver some as they approach your wound. That's what they're doing. And I don't really have any idea if what they cared the most about in that moment was really the poor or not. I don't know if they really cared about the poor or that was just a pretext for something else. And I know that's cynical, and you can put it up to me being Gen X if you want, but it's not like that isn't a possibility. You know, our political parties, they use the poor as a pretext all of the time. And so do lots of our celebrities, and so do lots of our so-called thought leaders. So why not the disciples? Why can't they use the poor as a pretext? Either way, the result is this. When his disciples looked at him, and when they saw that stuff on the ground, and when they smelled that smell in the air... The only thing that they could imagine that that pointed to was money. Or what could be done with the money. And like it or not, church, they did the math. And they decided Jesus isn't quite worth that. To pour out that much for Jesus... Waste. But that woman, 
she did the math too. Long before she walked into that room on that night, she did some figuring, and here's what she figured. Jesus is worth everything. All of my security, all of my comfort, the last bit of insulation that I have around me to protect me from who knows what, he's worth absolutely everything. That's what she figured. And when she looked around the room and she saw that ointment pooling on the floor, all she saw was Jesus. She knew that her own security, that her own safety, all of her money, all of her carefulness, none of that stuff, none of it was worth hanging on to in his presence. And that's why she's willing to hand them over in such unrestrained, wasteful, and extravagant devotion and love. Here's the thing. Read it. Read it. Read it. Read it from beginning to end. Read Mark, the whole Passion Week, from beginning to end. Read Matthew, the whole Passion Week, from beginning to end. Read Luke. Read John. And this is it. This is the one act of devotion and love that happens for Jesus on that final week before the cross. She alone understands. And that's exactly why Jesus silences these calculating men. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. He silences them because he accepts it. He accepts her devotion and love. And he knows far better than she does what it really means. I know you like to care for the poor, Jesus says. I know you like to care for them. You're always going to have the poor with you, but you are not always going to have me. And church, I hope we can hear this because this is the heart of it all. This is the point of the whole thing. Jesus is saying, I am the highest and truest good. I am the highest and truest good around which all of the other goods in your life find their place. I am the highest and truest good, and I am the one that orders all of the other good in your life. And this story is like the wild pitch that hits us and shakes us and makes us focus and ask ourselves, is that really true about Jesus? Do I really believe he is the highest and truest good? And if I do, what in my life has got to change? I mean, of course, Jesus could have gone another way in that moment. (laughs) He could have said, man, I'm the king of glory. I fed thousands out of nothing. You guys helped me do it made the lame to walk. I made the blind to see. I've healed all kinds of people. Peter, don't you remember your mother-in-law? I've raised people up from the dead. You remember that little girl? How'd you forget that little girl? Still the storm. I've released the oppressed. Taught you patiently every single day. Don't you think I'm worth it? I mean, Jesus could have said that. It would have been incredibly out of character. (laughs) But he would have been okay if he said it. 
But instead, this is the thing. He goes in the complete opposite direction. He runs as far from that as he possibly can. He says, I'm going to die. And she did what was right for a dead man. For a dead man. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, people are going to tell this story in memory of her. And slowly, her extravagant, costly, prodigal act of devotion comes into focus. She didn't know it, and the disciples didn't know it. But that beautiful waste spilling down over Jesus onto the floor was a pointer. It was a pointer to the even more beautiful, more extravagant, more costly, even more prodigal act of devotion that Jesus pours out at his cross. It's a twist you and I would never write. (laughs) We would never even anticipate it. It is news that is so good that we find it hard to believe even on our very best days. Jesus finds people like you and me to be worth everything. Everything he has. We are worth everything he has. And so he breaks it and he pours it all out. Every last drop of it. A ransom for many. And his cross and his resurrection and his ascension make a way for us to be forgiven and to be restored and to slowly be changed into the people that he created us to be. Church, that is the deep, mysterious, scandalous truth that courses through the entire created order. That is the truth of this universe. And you know the difficult end to the story is that Judas finds this to be all too much. Wow, he's had enough. He's had enough. If Jesus won't be the Jesus that Judas wants him to be, and I don't have any idea what Judas wanted out of Jesus, but if Jesus won't be the Jesus he wants him to be, then Judas is done with him. And we find then that this beautiful act of devotion is bookended on both sides by this incredible treachery. Judas went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And it is a terrifying, terrifying, terrifying thing that happens next. Judas decides exactly how much Jesus is worth. Just some money. Thirty pieces of silver. Nothing. And he sought, Mark says, an opportunity to betray him. And Judas teaches you and me a hard lesson. And that is that faith that's confined within the limits of reasonableness, that's a mutilated faith. It's not faith at all. Love that is restrained is not really love at all. And betrayal is just a kiss away. And with that, (laughs) Mark is begging us to find our place in the story. 
And it is really clear, <laughs> even for people like me who are slow on the uptake, it is really clear. Mark says, where are you in this story? Are you a Judas? Are you with these disciples doing their math? Are you with this woman with no name? Prodigal and unsettling in her devotion to the one who, through his death and resurrection and ascension, is prodigal and unsettling in his devotion to us. Who are you with? How much is he worth? Let me pray for us. Father, whatever it is that you need to do in us, in our hearts, in our minds, do it, please, so that we can see the truth that courses through the entire created order. That for Jesus, we are worth absolutely everything. <laughs> and that our response gratefully should be to absolutely break everything open for him. We know where the story is headed for the whole world. There's this moment where every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow. And they're going to say, Jesus is Lord. Make us willing actors in that moment. <laughs> Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.